Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Today on Words of Grace, I want to share with you a portion of the message that I delivered last weekend at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church entitled, Righteousness and Peace Have Kissed. And this message comes from the 85th Psalm, Psalm 85. Before we play this message for you, there are a couple of things that we want to share as a bit of a preface about this particular psalm. This psalm and its primary focus has to do with captivity and restoration. As far as the specific captivity that is under consideration in Psalm 85, commentators and theologians and preachers are divided. We aren't certain for sure which captivity the psalmist is writing about. Some think David wrote it with a Philistine captivity in mind. Others believe this is discussing restoration from the Babylonian captivity. And others believe it might even be a different captivity than that that Israel, Jacob, faced. This brings me to my next point that I want to share as a bit of a preface with you here today. In the Psalms, many times what we read had three uses or intentions. Number one, they had an initial specific application, what the psalmist was writing about and singing about in that moment. Number two, the psalms were also used generally as the hymn book of the children of Israel, the message encouraging the singers, those who sang of these deliverances. And number three, the psalms are often messianic. Though they had an initial application, so many times they pointed in various senses to Christ. Now, keep that in mind as we discuss the 85th Psalm together with this thought up for consideration. What captivity might we find alleviated by the Messiah? This is a psalm about captivity, and so many psalms are messianic, so What captivity might we find alleviated by the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ? Here is this morning's message from Psalm 85, Righteousness and Peace Have Kissed. Lord, Thou hast been favorable unto Thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of Thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Selah. Now, when the psalmist says, thou hast covered their sin, he meant that because God forgave them. They went back into their land. But what greater covering of a greater sin predicament from a greater captivity and a greater judgment might the psalmist ultimately be pointing towards? Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. And by the way, God the Lord 
You have the word for God and you have the word for Jehovah in that title. What Jehovah God will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. Let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. It's almost as obvious as the nose on my face that this is a messianic psalm. Where else does mercy and truth meet? Where else does righteousness and peace come together, giving forgiveness and deliverance from captivity? How else does the truth spring out of the earth? How else does righteousness go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps? Who is the he there? I believe the he there is Christ, the Messiah. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land... Now, initially, the land to which the psalmist refers is the nation of Israel and the portion of ground that God gave them in the Old Covenant. They were promised it through Abraham. That promise was reiterated in Isaac. It was reiterated in Jacob. His 12 patriarchs get to his sons wander in it. And then in the days of Moses, they're delivered from Egypt They wander 40 years and then God sends them likely a million people into Canaan's land that God had promised. And that's where they lived. They had borders there. Tribes were there. They had tribal borders and boundaries. It was a land overflowing with milk and honey. And certainly God was favorable unto that land. And when Jacob's captivity was reversed, when Israel's captivity was reversed, God showed his favor to them once again. In the New Testament, what might God's land be? God's land is His kingdom. God's land is His people. I'm thankful that God has blessed our country, but God had a land before this country was founded. If this country continues into full and total depravity and is wiped from the face of the earth, God will still have a land in this world because God has a kingdom that Jesus himself established when he came into this world, the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and it transcends all nations and cultures. It breaks into pieces and consumes all the nations of men. His land is his church. Let me just give you a little bit of a rule here. When I read, when we read revival passages in the Bible and we try to force them onto our country rather than onto the church, which is where they belong, we're missing the point. What would be a good example of that? Second Chronicles seven fourteen. if my people which are called by my name. How many times do we hear that applied to America? That applies to the church. You are the people called by His name. Do you think everybody in America is called by His name? No. Now, I love His country again. But the land that needs to be revived today is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what needs to be revived. 
And when he talks about being favorable to the land and bringing back the captivity, the captivity he has in mind ultimately is deliverance from the greatest foe, the most evil master, the most cruel tormentor, the power of that wicked one, the God of this world with a little g, the penalty of our sins, and an eternity separated from him. Christ has delivered us from a captivity. He has been favorable to the land, and he's brought back the captivity of Jacob. Verse 2, thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. You know, I love being a New Testament Christian. When they read this in the Old Testament, and they did apply it, many of them to the Messiah, But they were so stuck on their land, their dirt, their heritage, their history, that they missed much of this point. But in the New Testament, we can look back at that, and immediately our minds are triggered to think about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sins. Selah, think on these things. I saw a quote this week that is very true. It is impossible to understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. It is impossible. If you've never read through the Bible, and people ask me from time to time, I want to read the Bible. I want to get into Bible study. What is it that I need to do? Start at Matthew chapter 1 and read all the way through the New Testament. Read Matthew. Read Mark. Read Luke. Read John. Read Acts. Read Romans, read First and Second Corinthians, read Galatians, read Ephesians. Go all through the New Testament and then go back and start in Genesis. Why? Because you will not understand the Old Testament unless you have first understood the New Testament. The Old Testament is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. In it, Christ is concealed. In the New Testament, Christ is revealed. And the Old Testament is fully interpreted for us in its proper light. Now, as we begin looking at captivity, I want you to understand that captivity here is caused by sin. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of the people, back up into verse 1, thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Sin caused captivity. Captivity is caused by sin. So if sin causes captivity, for there to be restoration, there has to be forgiveness. If sin causes captivity, restoration has to come from forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to restoration, bringing back the captivity. This is true with their physical nation, but it's true to a much greater extent concerning our much greater captivity, our captivity to sin and the penalty of sin, which is separation from God in the lake of fire. Now, I want to dig into this word here, thou hast covered all their sins. That's an interesting word, cover. This word cover sometimes translates with reference to the atonement. Now, how might that frame our minds in a messianic light? To cover all our sins is, if you're reading it in the original language, 
to give atonement, at one reconciliation between God and man, that points our minds directly to the Christ, the Messiah. Thou hast covered all their sins. This word also translates hide. It translates clothe. And what's so interesting is that the concept of sin sometimes involves the exposure of one's nakedness. How many times in the prophets does God say that your nakedness is exposed unto me? And what God is saying by that, he's not being perverse. He's saying that I see through your clothing. I see what you really are. And what we really are by nature is sinful. I see your depravity. Think about in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time when Adam and Eve knew they were naked and they were ashamed and they were afraid. What is the first thing that they did? They took fig leaves and they tried to clothe themselves out of fig leaves. Have you ever worn fig leaves? I imagine that chafes. Wander around in the sun a little bit. You'll find that it's not going to be very long-lasting. You know, I'm out there all week repairing things that break in my yard from the sun hitting it, and it's made out of wood and vinyl, and, you know, you park a car out in the sun, and it peels the paint off of it. Imagine how fig leaves, how fig leaves would be so futile as a garment. That is man's self-righteousness, by the way. The fig leaves of human self-righteousness. And God comes and he says, Adam, where are you while I'm hiding? Why are you hiding? Because I'm afraid. I, I I was naked and, well, who told you that? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not? Well, the woman, wait a minute. Don't shift the blame to the woman. God didn't place the woman as the head of the house there, did he? Who's in charge there? Who's the head of the house? Adam was. It doesn't say by one woman giving a man food, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. It says by one man sin entered into the world. Adam is at fault because Adam was the one who was left with the commandment. You know what God does before he's done communicating with Adam and Eve? He takes animal skins. He gives the animal skins to Adam and Eve as what? As clothing. You know what had to happen for those animal skins to be given to Adam and Eve? Animal skins don't just spontaneously come into existence, do they? This isn't pleather, you know, like fake leather. It's not faux fur. Something had to die. And when something died, God himself slayed that which died to provide the covering of the nakedness of the man and the woman that he created that rebelled against him. You see a picture of Christ there? I'm telling you, this book begins with Christ. It culminates at the coming of Christ, all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, and then this book ends with, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This is the book of Christ. How has he covered our sin? What was the subject of our message last week? Do you remember? Christ is the answer. He covers our sin through Christ. At the same time, thou hast 
taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Forgiveness and turning of wrath are also connected in Scripture. Captivity, in their experience, captivity was a result of their sinfulness. God didn't take Israel out of Egypt just to torment them in the wilderness, but to be a special sanctified people unto him. And when they wouldn't, they would go into captivity and God would bring them out again. They would go into captivity, God would bring them out again. Reference that earlier. This nation was in captivity more often than any other nation in history because God kept restoring them because of his promises and purposes, not because of theirs, because of his. Fierceness and wrath and forgiveness are connected God's anger is at times fierce. This is fitting. It's appropriate, though, as humans, and just speaking honestly about human nature, so many times when we see God's wrath as clearly as we can, what we think is, God, that's not fair. It shouldn't be that harsh. It shouldn't be that hard. What does God's wrath demand for humanity without the covering of Christ? It demands separation from Him for all of eternity. If we see sin for what it is, and God's holiness for what it is, we won't think the fierceness of God is too harsh or wrong or inappropriate. Now, here's the amazing thing. God loved you so much. Listen to me. Listen to me. God loved you so much that He would endure His own fierceness to take away the iniquity that you committed that offended him. God loved you so much, he endured his own fierce wrath when mercy and truth met together, when righteousness and peace kissed each other as the Lord Jesus died upon the cross for you. God has covered your sin. Thou hast taken... Away all thy wrath, thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. How did he do that? Because he suffered his fierceness for us in the person of Christ Jesus. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Now, you might be thinking, well, he begins with, God be favorable unto your land. You have been favorable to your land and you brought us back from captivity. Now you're saying, turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Well, which is it? They've been brought back or God still has anger towards them. Now that's interesting and in your mind it may seem like a contradiction of sorts, but perhaps this is because the writer is in present distress And what he's doing is looking back on the previous captivities and the previous deliverances. So often that happens in the Bible. God, you delivered us before. I'm in distress now. I pray that you deliver me now. Application number two of the Psalms. Do you remember how these are used in a general sense with a message to encourage those that sing it? Are you going through problems right now? Then think about the deliverances of God in your past. And it will give you strength to bear this affliction. You can endure this affliction with hope, knowing that the same God that delivered you then can deliver you now if it be His will. And even if it's not His will to deliver you, He'll give you the grace and the strength to bear the difficulty and to bear the affliction. Will you be angry forever? 
Will you draw out thine anger to all generations? Because afflictions were emblematic of God's wrath towards their behavior, for their behavior, asking if it will, if he will be angry forever means, basically, Lord, will all generations of our people suffer affliction because of this wrath? If his wrath never has an expiration in the mind of the psalmist here, what hope have any generations? From a messianic perspective, you might apply this. Lord, will we be cast away from you for all of eternity? Will your wrath towards us continue forever? Guess what? In the case of the wicked, his wrath will continue forever because his wrath for them is never appeased because Christ did not die for their sins. In verses 6 and 7, the psalmist asks for revival. Will thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I want to say a couple of words regarding revival. What does revival look like? For Israel, revival looked like returning to their home and enjoying the life, the liberty, and the freedom to worship that they used to enjoy. That's revival to Israel. If you're in Babylonian captivity, revival is going back to Jerusalem. And one day God would bless them in the captivity to do so. There is such a thing as personal revival. Now, by the way, I want to notice the connection here. Will thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? What does revival look like in an individual? It looks like a heart that springs forth praises unto God. What does revival look like for a church? There's a whole lot I'd like to say about this, and maybe we'll talk about it at a future time. Number one, for a church to be experiencing revival, what that means, how that's defined, how do you quantify it, the church will feel the presence of God when they meet. If we do not feel the presence of God as we worship Him, as you sing praises to Him, as you hear the message proclaimed, then our church stands in need of revival. Liveliness and worship. Rejoicing leads to liveliness. Revival leads to visitors. God revives the church. He sends people there to eat. Revival leads to conversions. People saying, I feel God moving in my life. I want to be baptized. I want to take up my cross I want to follow him. Revival leads to that in a church. Revival leads to all demographics being present. Sometimes we think of revival as a big meeting with a lot of famous preachers from around the country, packing a building with as many people as we can and having a loud song service. But if it's not affecting the local assembly, it hadn't been revival. You might have been lifted up a little bit, but revival affects the local assembly. I thank God for the times of revival that we've had here at Flint River, but I pray for more revival because you know what? We get tired. What does God teach us by saying every day you need to sleep and wake up refreshed? That we need often revival. 
What does he tell us in the Old Testament when out of every seven days we have a day of rest to be revived that we often need revival? We need revival all the time. You say, man, thank God we had revival once. We need revival all the time. The moment we stop seeking to be revived is the moment we begin to decline. We need God's reviving presence among us. Do I need it? You're absolutely right, I do. Simple question is, am I rejoicing in God? If the answer is no, then yeah, we need revival. In verses 8 through 9, the psalmist shifts to hope. I'm going to read it and go to verse 10. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace unto His people. You know, that's what we are as preachers of peace. Now, there's a time where we reprove and rebuke and exhort, but listen, my job is to preach peace, to publish the good news of salvation, not to tongue-lash you or to lambast you, to scold you or to make you feel guilty. My job is to publish peace to you. He will speak peace unto his people, to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Why would we need to be reminded not to turn again to folly? Because that's what we do. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Now here's our statement. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In this psalm, we read themes of revival, but the main focus is restoration from captivity. How might this apply the most to us? Christ has delivered you from the captivity of sin. Christ has delivered you from the captivity of Satan. Christ has delivered you from the captivity of God's wrath in the lake of fire? The answer is Christ. Where have mercy and truth met together, righteousness and peace kissed each other, where unrighteous people get the peace of God? It happened as Jesus Christ hung upon the cross of Calvary and died for us. Truth says we're sinful, and yet mercy meets with truth. The righteous standard of God says we are unrighteous, and yet righteousness and peace have met together. By the way, to kiss there doesn't mean what we commonly take it to mean. And Probably the only person you kiss is your spouse. And, and by the way, that's the way that it's supposed to be. But in this day, that was a form of greeting. This is a greeting of friends. This is two friends coming together, reconciled, greeting one another in unity and peace. How do mercy and truth come together? Do righteousness and peace kiss one another? The truth is we are unrighteous, and yet God's mercy and God's peace have come to us. John answers that in John chapter 1 and verse 17. The law was given by Moses. What does the law do? Condemns unrighteousness. What are we? We are unrighteousness. But listen to me. Grace and truth 
came by Jesus Christ. This psalm ends with a beautiful picture of truth availing, revival, instruction, and Christ going before us and setting us in the ways of his steps. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. That's revival. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. What would you learn at church today? You learned that even though we're sinful, that even though we're wretched and wicked, truth, righteousness, peace, and mercy all came together in the person of Jesus Christ as Jesus took away our captivity as he covered our sins. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.